Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Thank you. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. You guys may be seated. So thank you, uh, Pastor Rod, and thank you to the elders. Um, all of them are like spiritual fathers to me in, in a sense where they give me feedback and mentor me, and I am deeply, deeply grateful uh, for their kindness to me and allowing me to preach here at Gateway and serve you at Gateway as well. So, um, you know, coming from a Filipino church, normally when Manny Pacquiao fights, <laughs> win or lose, it's, it's all the talk the next day. So um, I promise I won't mention Manny Pacquiao again. Uh, he did lose, FYI, if you don't know. Um, so anyways, um, it is only fitting that God ordained me for, to preach this morning, um, knowing that I had to prepare all week and um, not watch the fight last night just because I didn't want to get riled up. Um, so anyway, so again, um, let me just go uh, to the Lord in prayer um, once again because uh, we need him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you um, for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, we need your spirit now as you teach us and preach to us your word. Father, use me as your vessel to speak to your people, to speak to people here at Gateway. Pierce our hearts, Lord. Open our eyes to the beauty of the gospel. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the Lord saved me in, in high school. As some of you know, I went to a Christian school, started in the first grade all the way up through my senior year, uh, ultimately graduating from there. In studying our text this morning, I began to ponder God's grace in my life. And so I recall of this relentless pursuit of God chasing me. I thought about the time as a young boy um, on my journey in the, in the Christian school, at this Christian school. The first day of class, um, I remember I, I was first grade, and I still remember my teacher's names, um, Mrs. Springstead. She directed us to open Psalm 23. And from there, she began to teach and exposit Psalm 23 to a little boy and to all the little kids in the class. It was so clear that even I understood the message. The word of God was being planted in me from that time because I've never opened the Bible before. I remember my fifth grade teacher, Miss Fetters, showing us a thief in the night. Yes, I watched A Thief in the Night when I was nine, ten years old. And if you guys know what that movie is, that's the scarier version of um, Left Behind. And yes, I, I was scared. But I also remember her missionary, her missionary stories. During the summer, she would go to China, and she would um, minister to the people over there, and she would tell us all the, 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 the ministry stories that she used to have, sharing the gospel with all the students over there. And that sparked my interest in the gospel. I remember my seventh grade teacher, Mr. Lyles, 
who would see me walking to school in the rain, and he would always pick me, I would always walk to school, and if it's raining, I, know, I knew Mr. Lyles would pick me up. He always picked me, never, never fails. He'd say, hey, get in my car. And when you get in his car, he'll start sharing the gospel with me. And it's like, hey, you know, I just want to talk to you about Jesus. And our conversation will just be on the gospel. I remember my, my PE teacher, Mr. Camphor, he, who warned me about sin, which prompted me to throw away my, my rap cassettes. Um, yes, I own cassette tapes. I remember my science teacher. One Sunday morning, my science teacher, Mr. DeBolt, he, he showed up at my door. And he was inviting me to church. And I thought that was just the most awkward encounter I had with a teacher, just because teachers don't show up at your door on Sunday morning. He just came, he said, hey, I want to know if you want to come to church. So God was, time after time, teacher after teacher, friend after friend, pursuing me with, with this glorious gospel. So some of you teachers in here, take heart. Your students will remember you if you share the gospel with them if you approach them and loving them and caring for them. You know, after I committed my life to Christ in high school, the big question I had on my mind was, now what? I had no Christian family to go home to, just my Bible, some friends, and some teachers. I wanted to live the Christian life, but I didn't quite know how. You see, in our text this morning, we see Paul show us the how with an urgent plea to live the Christian life. But he also summarizes the Christian life as a whole in the first two verses of chapter 12. He answers the question, now what? One of the questions I have for us today is how do we live after saving faith in the glorious gospel? And so my aim this morning, which is Paul's plea, is this. Christians are to live sacrificial lives of worship, transforming their minds so that the believer's life yields to the desires of God. But before we jump right into the how, we must see what the driving force is, what is actually fueling a believer's life, which is the gospel. In the first part of verse 1, as we look at our text, it helps us see where Paul will ultimately go in chapters 12 through 16. So this portion of our text really gives us a background. Let me read the verse. Verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. In our text this morning, as I mentioned, we see Paul's urgent plea to believers of the church in Rome. Why the sense of urgency, may I ask? Because the Apostle Paul knew the urgency that came with living out the Christian life. He knows that a believer's battle is in mind and essentially in body. So Paul urges us as Christians to live a truly God-centered, Christ-centered, gospel-centered life. He begins with these words, I appeal to you, therefore. The word therefore in the book of Romans or excuse me, the word therefore is a heavy transitional word that you have to know why it's there. This is the fourth therefore in the book of Romans where Paul's transitioning to something important. What Paul's really saying is this, in light of what I just told you, we must live this way. 
Paul doesn't go straight to the how part. We'll get to that in a little bit. He says this, by the mercies of God. And we see the mercies of God in the first 11 chapters in the book of Romans. You see, in the first 11 chapters, Paul systematically lays out God's sovereign plan for salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's, this is a flyover. I know it might go quick, but you know, I just wanted to give a background so we all could just think and ponder upon our text this morning. So let's just go through this. Romans 1, 1 through 17, we see the introduction to the gospel. The gospel message is for everyone, Jew and Gentile. That's why he's writing to the church in Rome. Romans 1.16, let me read it for you. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Then we see in Romans 1.18 through 3.20, we deserve God's righteous anger because of our rejection of a righteous God. Therefore, everyone is faced with God's righteous condemnation. All people from all of time knew God. He made it plain to them. And this is why we need the gospel, because before we became believers, our destination was condemnation. Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Then we see in Romans 3:21 through 4:25 the righteousness of God is set apart for those who put their faith in Christ and his promises. To sum it up in one word, this section could be fine as our justification. This is a beautiful section. We are justified because of Jesus' death and resurrection, and God is righteous in killing his son in order for us to be righteousness on his behalf. Let me read that to you again. We are justified because of Jesus' death and resurrection, and God is righteous in killing his son in order for us to be righteousness on his behalf. I mean, that, that's a... Pro- Romans 3, 21 through 26, if you ever get a chance to meditate and think upon, that, that's essentially, that's the heart of the gospel right there, and that's God's sovereignty working through his son and being justified through his son. Then we have Romans 5, 1, verses 8 to, to eight thirty nine, And it's about the power we have in Christ from sin and death, the promise of Christ in future and eternal glory, and understanding God's love for us. Here we have our sanctification. It's a process of being made holy. Because of God's grace, it enables us to have power over sin presently and to look forward toward our future hope, which is Jesus Christ. Lastly, in chapters 9 through 11, We see God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, and the relationship between God and Israel. Chapter 9 is everyone's favorite Bible study. You know, I I always get texts or calls and say, hey, pray for me. We're going to go through chapter 9 in Romans. It's a heavy, heavy chapter. See, God knows, God controls, and supreme over all things. To sum up chapters 1 through 11, we see man's sinfulness, 
God's saving grace through the gospel and his sovereignty over all things. I mean, I've read countless stories or heard people who just read Romans 1 through 8 and they they end up getting saved. God just opens their eyes because the text is so heavy theologically, heavy on the gospel. And Paul, he can't help but break into doxology. If we turn our Bibles to uh, chapter 11 in Romans, starting with verse 33, We see Paul, he breaks into this beautiful doxology. It's, it's more of a spontaneous worship. I mean, the only thing Paul could do is really praise God. Let me read it for you. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Consequently, we see the motivation for the Christian life summed up in two words and or phrases in our text this morning. The first part there in verse one, therefore and by the mercies of God. That's the motivation. Paul urges us in light of what he just said in chapters 1 to 11, what God has done to live in a certain way. Paul is saying if we understand the mercies of God, all that he has given us, we can only respond in grateful obedience. So the question I have for us this morning is not how do we move on from the gospel, but how can we go on in gospel living? which brings us to our first point this morning. The gospel fuels us to live a life of sacrificial worship. Second part of verse one, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. First thing we see in this text is the gospel demands giving our lives to God. You see, before we came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we would use our bodies for our own pleasures and promises, or excuse me, own pleasures and purposes. But now, as believers, our whole being belongs to God. Therefore, Paul uses the language of temple and sacrifice to describe the total dedication of a life given to God. The idea of sacrifice was really at the heart of Israel's life. I know some of us who are going through the McShane Bible reading plan, it recently took us through Leviticus. And if you remember, God gives us detailed instructions on how sacrifices should be made. A sacrifice meant making atonement for our sins. Remember in Leviticus 16? But it also means, a sacrifice also meant a wholehearted devotion to God. There are two examples in the Bible of a living sacrifice. One is found in Genesis 22. We read about um, a living sacrifice in Isaac who willingly put himself on the altar to die in obedience to God's will. But we remember the story where, where you know, God sent a ram to take his place. I mean, the story was, it was Abraham willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. And Isaac was prepared to sacrifice his body. But we also see the same living sacrifice in the gospel story. God willed to sacrifice his son Jesus and Jesus became a living sacrifice for us. 
Jesus actually died. And he was resurrected. That's the gospel. Jesus is the perfect living sacrifice because he offered his body, yet he died in obedience and committed his life to the Father's will. The word in our text, the word present, is really a handing over, a total commitment of your life to the Lord. Like a bride and groom on their wedding day, you're committing yourselves to each other. You're saying, I am yours, you are mine, and we belong to God. That's a total commitment. Then we see the word sacrifice in the Greek. That word sacrifice, it really means killing or butchered. Right, So when we're reading it, it's actually saying we are to be a living killing, which is sort of a paradox there. But we are to be a living killing in the Christian life. What does that mean? It means that we need to put something to death, which is ourselves. We are to give it, all. We, we are to give it our all in, in total commitment to God. One commentary puts it like this. To be a living sacrifice is to be fully at God's disposal. It means actively to be willing to obey God in anything he says in any area of life and passively to be willing to thank God for anything he sends in any area of life. Let me see this in Romans 6, if you turn your Bibles there. Paul's referring to presenting ourselves. And I'll just read a couple verses from there. Romans 6.13 says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. A couple verses down in 6 verse 16, do, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Then 19, I'm speaking human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Lastly, in Romans 8, 11 through 13, this is John Owen's, um, his book, Mortification of Sin. Let me read it for you. Again, chapter 8, 11 through 13. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death deeds of the body, you will live. You see, we are, we are called to kill our rights, our thinking, our impulses for the sake of Christ. It means everything that we have is his. I know it sounds a little disheartening, but Jesus, Jesus says, his, I am better than all your rights, your own thinking, your own impulses. That's what Jesus is saying to us. That's what the gospel is saying to us. The text is, is laying out service for God. Therefore, sacrifice yourself to him. Why do I say that? Because you're already doing it. We're already sacrificing ourselves. Here's what I mean. Believe it or not, you're sacrificing your life to or for something. If it's not Jesus. Maybe it's your career, working long hours, not because you have to, but because you want to. Maybe some of us are just working away 
sacrificing our lives to our careers. Maybe it's a person, even your spouse. He or she is maybe your idol. This is not a sacrificial giving like we understand in marriage, but it's an idol because they're above God. Or maybe it's your children. You want everything to be perfect for them and you can't let go of certain things. Whatever it is, if it's something other than Jesus, that's what's controlling your life. I remember we, we were getting ready um, for Piper to come into the world. We were reading all the books, all the blogs, all the articles on babies. You know, we were trying to be the perfect first-time parents. It was saying, wear this, eat that, sleep at this time. It was as if we were trying to create a special program and we just input all these things like a formula and boom, comes out perfect baby, right? But it became tiring for us as parents. Our joy was being taken away. And so we've learned to let go on some things. I know, I know we have to follow certain protocols, but we, we, we learn as a process to let go of certain things as parents. So if she eats a little Play-Doh, fine. <laughs> if she drinks a little glue, I think we're okay with that. But we have to be careful to not let something or someone control your life. Some questions to ask yourself this morning. Who or what are you offering your life to? What do you spend most of your time doing? What occupies your mind? If it's something other than God, that is what you're giving your life to. The second sub-point to our text this morning is the gospel demands service to the Lord. What kind of service? It's in our text. It says, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. We are to be living daily while killing what's not pleasing to God. Killing what's not pleasing to God makes us holy. Therefore, holiness separates us from sin, completely set apart. I remember um, I was listening to one of John MacArthur's chapel messages before dismissing his students uh, for summer break. And he was talking about going to summer, fighting against sin. And he said these words. He says, every day, purpose in your heart not to sin. And I was was like, purpose in your heart not to sin every single day? I was like, that's impossible, right? It's like, and you know, he was saying, it's sometimes if, if we're not really thinking about our sin and purposing in our heart not to sin, it is a form of, of, of laziness. I'm not trying to sound like a legalist up here, but we really need to think through our lives every single day, every single second, and saying, I'm gonna purpose in my heart not to sin. That's holiness. That's separating ourselves from sin so that we could be holy to God. Being holy in light of the gospel results in wanting to please God. First Thessalonians, Thessalonians 2, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. You see, once we were once hostile to God, but now God sees us as sons and daughters because God sees Jesus' perfect obedience. Therefore, God sees us as his beloved, acceptable children. 
And because God accepts us, we can now live in a way that is acceptable to him. I know some translation says pleasing to him. And really, it's the only logical thing to do. That's what spiritual worship here means. It means logical, reasonable service to God. In other words, this should be our response to God. In light of all you've done for me, I want to die to myself, be committed to you, and the only logical thing to do is give myself to you through service. If you really think about it, that's what the gospel compels us to do. We say, use me, I'm yours. In light of your mercies. You see, true worship is responding in light of the mercies of God by devoting ourselves to God. And, and in devoting ourselves, we're constantly transforming our minds, which takes us to our next point, the mind. The gospel not only fuels us to live sacrificial lives of, of worship, but the gospel fuels us to live a life influenced by God's word. First part of verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The world spends billions of dollars on how to shape how we live, what we buy, how we think of ourselves. Social media is changing our behavior. TVs, TV shows, movies are giving us ideas that sometimes, if we're not careful, we, we end up conforming to. Don't get me wrong, I am thankful for all the information we have at our fingertips. But in some cases, it, it can be hypnotizing. The truth is, at times, it can mess with our heads. It seeps into our minds and it can eventually change us. You see, whose, people whose minds are changed to the world suppress the truth and turn their minds to idols. This is what Paul talks about in chapter one. This is what conforming to the world looks like. Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became uh, fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, the world wants to control our minds. And if you remember, before we came to saving faith, we were once followers of the prince of this world. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do not be conformed to, to the world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. See, once we are saved, our minds have already been changed. However, now we must pursue this continual delight in God's law, which is the Bible. 
Living a sacrificial life of worship that is holy and acceptable to God requires a transforming of the mind. I know I preached on Psalm 1 a couple weeks ago. Um, I wish I spent more time kind of fleshing out what biblical meditation means, um, but thankfully I, I get to preach again so I can add more of what I wanted to say. Um, Here's what it says in Psalm 1. You don't have to turn there, but just real quickly. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So in order to be influenced by God's word, we must meditate on his word. See, the gospel demands that we meditate on the word of God in order to transform our minds. And here are three practical steps we can take toward biblical meditation. We need to meditate prayerfully. As you read and ponder upon the word, we must pray. Ask God to help you earnestly seek him through prayer while reading his word. Second, we need to meditate quietly. Get in a quiet spot. I know we love Starbucks or Pete's, but get in a quiet space. Whether you're waking up early or or going to bed late, find the time to be still. Thirdly, Meditate with pen in hand. Write down what God is saying to you. Highlight, underline, keep a journal. Write down scripture. It will help you meditate on his word. And this is not a a mystical type of meditation. This is saying, look, I'm gonna think about what God is saying to me through his word. I'm gonna do it prayerfully, I'm gonna do it quietly, I'm gonna do it with pen in hand. Our second sub-point is the gospel demands that we adorn the doctrine of God. What doctrines do we see in Romans? Let me, there's, there's, there's a big list, but I'll read off some. Here are some of the doctrines we see in Romans. God, which is theology proper. Christ, which is Christology. Man, which is anthropology. Salvation, which is our sort of, soteriology, sin, justification, sanctification, election. Those are just to name a few, but it's all there in Romans. And so we must adorn the doctrine of God. If you remember when we spoke on Titus, the elders and Johnny and myself, what does it say in in Titus 2? It says, Paul tells us in everything that we may adorn the doctrine of God. Study the doctrines of God in Romans. I know some of you or some of the men are are going through, everybody's a theologian and they're going through various doctrines as well as the women. I know they're going through housewife theologian and so all these doctrines are are just, you know, they're they're great things to study and they're great things to ponder upon and I'm, I'm glad that Gateway is studying it here. And so we and the elders, um, we just finished discussing uh, soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation and we were discussing election. And it's just, there's so much beauty in, in understanding the doctrine of election. I mean, these doctrines really transform the way you approach God if you approach him with a humble heart. You know, I once heard someone say that doctrines are like love letters from God. A transformation of the mind is lifelong. Some of us will all go at different paces in the Christian life. But if we're not transforming daily, we will be conforming to the world.
Be in the word, meditate on the word. In doing so, you will certainly be influenced by it. Let your mind be dominated by God's word. So far, we see that the gospel fuels us to live a life of sacrificial worship, a life that is influenced by God's word, and lastly, the gospel fuels us to live a life that discerns the will of God. Last part of verse two, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This will is not the sovereign will of God that he plans to do, but the revealed will, which is something we are called to do. Let me say that again. This will is not the sovereign will of God that he plans to do, but the revealed will, which is something that we are called to do. Two things I see in this particular text. The gospel demands that we live out the will of God. So what is the will of God according to our passage this morning? And I've kind of already said it, but let me just go through it. If you're reading verses one and two, let me, let me just kind of connect everything. If I had a pen and paper and I was showing you, I would circle and underline and, and cross, but let me just show you. The will of God is in our text this morning. Let me read. The will of God is gratitude for grace. That is, there, that, is the, that is the words, therefore, and mercies of God, which flows out of chapters one to 11. The will of God is a wholehearted commitment to God which is the word present. The will of God is offering our bodies to God, which is the living sacrifice. The will of God is killing sin, which is the words holy and acceptable. The will of God is giving ourselves to God, which is spiritual worship. The will of God is being influenced by scripture, which is the phrase we just read, do not be conformed but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is a testing and discernment of the will of God. You see the adjectives described, describing the will of God, good, acceptable, and perfect, are not talking about attributes of God, but God's will itself is what's good, acceptable, and perfect for every Christian. Secondly, the gospel demands that we enjoy the will of God. When we get our, give our lives over to sacrificial worship, transforming our minds in accordance with the word, our lives will yield to his will, therefore enjoying God. But for some of us, we can, be spiritually, we can become spiritually stagnant if we are living out of fear and duty. You know, we could go to church Sunday after Sunday, we could attend home groups, small groups, read our Bible reading plan, serve in church, go to work, tend to our families, but have no joy in doing any of these things. So we need to train our mind and see that the gospel must become more beautiful to our mind, more attractive to our heart, above any idols in our life, in order for us to enjoy the will of God. You see, once the gospel is in our minds and hearts, we begin to see and enjoy God. You know, Jerry Bridges, he coined the term preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. And so when we are reminded of the mercies of God and we can't live any other way but in service to him, that's preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. That's us enjoying God. 
God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. Let me conclude some things here. I, I know I shared my testimony sort of story. I shared with you in the beginning. And it was a reflection on God's relentless pursuit on my life. But I wanted to mention before I attended the Christian school, um, before I attended the Christian school I eventually went to, I was supposed to go to a, a private Catholic school. Um, you see, my, I have an older brother, and uh, he failed a kindergarten test or something. My mom always jokes like he didn't know where his elbow was, or that's why he failed. Um, but anyway, so he couldn't get into the Catholic school. So, you know, because of that, my parents still wanted us to attend like a private school. So. What was left was, hey, well, we'll just enroll you in a Christian school, whatever, you know, it's, at least it's private and whatever. Um, but that's what my parents did. I mean, it's like, and normally I follow suit, I would follow suit. So basically I followed my brother to the Christian school as an alternative. As I look back, I mean, that, that's God's grace. I mean, I've, I would have never chosen the path myself unless God chose it for me. And because I went to this Christian school, I was able to meet these Christian teachers who had such a gospel impact on my life. And so I share this with you, not to point to me, but to point to the mercies of God. Because we all have stories like this. I ask you to think back on your life and ponder when or how God has saved you. I mean, that's why Paul had to break into spontaneous praise. Paul knew the mercies of God in his life. He saw it and he never forgot what Christ did for him. You see, all of us who have come to saving faith in Christ can look back and say, by the mercies of God, he saved me. We could have gone this way or that way, but he saved me. And it's all God. The gospel says we are so messed up, so lost, so hopeless, and so sinful that nothing less than the death of the Son of God can save us from our sins. But it is through the cross that Jesus says, I wanted to do it. I pursued you. I became a living sacrifice for you. Jesus died so that we may live. Therefore, we must die to ourselves in order to live. This is the gospel that fuels us to live the Christian life every day. And so I urge you, Gateway, by the mercies of God, to let this gospel change the way you live. Let us pray. Father, you are so gracious and you are so merciful to us. This gospel... It needs to penetrate our our minds and our hearts so that we may change, Lord, not out of fear, not out of duty, but because of everything you have done for us. It's the only logical thing to do is to serve you in every way. So I pray, Father, as a church, that we submit to you, that we offer our bodies as living sacrifices to you, that we could say and pray that you may do whatever you want in our lives to serve you in any capacity, maybe serving in the home, serving in our workplace, serving in the church. 
Lord, change us, transform our minds, help us to think upon your word and meditate on your word. We thank you for saving us, O Lord. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.